Chapter Seven of the Bridge of History over the Gulf of Time by Thomas Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: The Arch of Magna Carta. What shall we call the thirteenth century? I propose that we name it the Arch of Magna Carta, for I am passionately in favor of all good old English associations of ideas. But what is Christianity to do with the great charter of English liberty obtained from King John by the barons on Runnymede? My friends, there is a connection that I like very much to remember, and that you should not forget. Who was the mental leader, the living mind, that led and guided the barons in their great victory over the tyrant King John? I am not thinking of the knight who led their army, Robert Fitzwalter. I mean their great counsellor and adviser, Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury and the Cardinal of the Holy Roman Church. I am a dissenter and don't care how soon the bands are broken between church and state, for I think it has been an unholy wedlock from the first. But I sometimes think I hear my dissenting brethren talk very strong talk about the established church. The established church, they say, has always been the foe of liberty. Tell the truth about the devil himself, I always reply. Look over your history of England, please, and you will find that the established church has been again and again the staunch preserver of English liberty. There have been periods in our history when there was no power but that of the established church that was able to withstand a tyrant king, and the established church did withstand him, and successfully too. Oh, aye, what you are pointing to is true enough, observed some dissenting brother, but there was no patriotism in it. Several occurrences of the kind you mean are to be found in our history, no doubt, but churchmen did not withstand royal tyranny as patriots, it was only to save something for themselves. It was sheer selfishness, I tell you, no patriotism at all. My good friend, I beg to observe that if no man is ever to be deemed a patriot but the man that has no selfishness, I fear you will never find a true patriot in the history of the whole world. We'll grant that all the selfishness existed you speak of, but if men like Stephen Langton, who very likely wrote out Magna Carta himself, as well as struggled for it, have labored to strengthen and widen and lengthen the great platform of English liberty for you and me, let us be grateful to their memories. And the memory of Langton ought to excite gratitude. You remember how, when John had put his royal seal to Magna Carta, and had taken an oath in the name of the Holy Trinity to observe all its provisions faithfully, he sent to the Pope, and desired to be absolved from his oath. But lately, you know, he had been a rebel against the Pope. But when all of the friends were gone, he had been compelled to submit to the Pope, and was actually paying the Pope so many hundred crowns a year for his kingdom. So he desired, as he now had become an obedient son of the church, that the Pope would kindly absolve him from the oath he had so solemnly taken to keep Magna Carta. For he declared it took away all his kingly power, and the barons might as well have dethroned him as compelled him to take an oath to keep it. And the Pope absolved King John from his oath. What? you cry. Absolve him? How can any mortal absolve a man from a solemn oath taken in the name of his Maker, and in the presence of assembled thousands of his fellow men? My good friends, do not be shocked when I assure you of what you may learn from history, that many people at that time believed that the Pope, in spiritual things, could do almost as much as God Almighty could do. It is declared by Cardinal Bellarmine, and Rome has no greater authority in the ample list of her cardinals, that if the Pope orders a man to commit sin, the act so committed becomes an act of holiness. I should deem that to be the highest point of the devil's grammar, and that if he could get all professing Christians to become his scholars so far, 
that is, to become as great scholars as Cardinal Bellarmine, old Nick would rub his paws with satisfaction and say, Now I am content. But what cared Englishmen either for the Pope or for the forsworn king? Be it ever remembered that our forefathers were rather a crooked lot for popes to manage. Popes could never get their own bad way, even in their most thrifty times so easily in England as they wished. The barons seized the Tower of London and hung out their flags of defiance against both Pope and King, whereat King John raged and swore and foamed at the mouth and vowed that he would have revenge on the rebels. So he now besought the Pope to take the most powerful and extreme means to aid him. And forthwith the Pope sent his bull of excommunication into England. "'What's that?' say you. "'A thing with horns?' No, it is a parchment with a curse written upon it in Latin, and having a leaden bullet attached to it as the Pope's seal, bulla is a Latin word for a bullet, and so it was called a bull. And the curse was one of the most horrible that could be conceived upon all persons who would not give up Magna Carta and let the king have his own way as an oppressor and a tyrant. It was a curse upon them sitting and standing and lying and walking and asleep and awake, and in time and to all eternity a curse that should hurl them into the bottomless pit with the Quran and Dathan and Abiram and Judas Iscariot and all the vilest sinners that ever lived. And the Pope sent this cursing bull to Stephen Langton, the Cardinal and Archbishop of Canterbury, and commanded him to read it, openly and in the most solemn manner, in his cathedral, with all his monks and priests around him, each hold a lighted candle. And when Langton had read the curse, Every monk and priest was to dash out the light of his candle by throwing it onto the ground and trampling it under his feet as significant of the darkness of the curse that should fall upon this land. For if the bull had been read by the archbishop as the pope commanded, the whole kingdom of England would have been placed under what papists called an interdict. That is to say, no corpse could have been buried, no church bells rung, no religious service performed, no marriage celebrated, no sacrament received. It would have seemed as if an immeasurable funeral pall hung over the whole land. But the Pope mistook his man. Stephen Langton was an Englishman to the backbone, and would not read the bull of excommunication. He loved English liberty, and defied both Pope and King. Poor fellow, he had to go to banishment for it, and could not return to England until the tyrant John's death. Remember that Langton's memory is a grand memory. And when you young Englishmen who are listening to me go to look at grand old Canterbury Cathedral, for you ought to go and look at York and Lincoln and Winchester and Salisbury and the other monuments of ancient grandeur in the realm, I say, when you go to Canterbury, and the verger busily points out the spot where Becket was murdered and where his shrine stood, and points to the scabbard and spurs and the helmet of Edward the Black Prince, ask him to guide you to the tomb of Stephen Langton, that you may place your hand upon it, and call up the memory of such an Englishman with heartfelt gratitude. With shame we call upon the name of another Englishman, whom otherwise we could wish to praise, Simon de Montfort, who led the cruel persecution of the Albigenses in the south of France to gratify papal power also in this century. The Albigenses were another branch of Christ's suffering but pure church which God always has preserved, under one name or another in the world since the Saviour appeared. You must read about them, and we must hasten on. Now in this thirteenth century there were grand cathedrals and stately monasteries and parish churches in this land, and the like in France and Spain and Portugal and Italy and Germany and other lands, 
and the belief was fixed in the minds of the millions that jesus of nazareth had lived in the world performed his miracles been crucified and risen from the dead whence came the belief did it really arise out of the wanderings of the human imagination is christianity indeed derived from the ancient fable of the sun let us recommence our journey and see if we find christianity on the arch of the bridge of history preceding the thirteenth century or arch of magna carta end of chapter seven